trying to argue with me in front of everybody. <laughs> hey, if, uh, if, if we have any guests here, my name is Justin Holifant. I'm the, I'm the pastor here at Crosspoint, and this is my beautiful wife, Ashley, and this is Rhett, by the way, uh, baby boy Rhett inside there. Uh, anyway, we can, let's move over here so you can put your... Uh, so Ashley's going to read uh, our sermon text for us this morning, uh, and then we'll pray. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of a temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders who has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let us pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we have an opportunity to gather here as a body and open it up uh, and hear from you. So God, we pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe at that which you have for us this morning. God, what we don't know Teach us what we're not doing. Give us the faith to do it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to put this right, right here. I can't, I don't know how to do that clip. I'm not, I'm not musically gifted, so I don't know how to do a mic clip. Uh, obviously, if you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 4. Uh, thanks, Ash, for, for reading the text. Uh, so if you haven't been with us, we have been walking through the book of Acts. We picked back up uh, two weeks ago uh, and walked through Acts chapter 3. Uh, and so I have a lot to go through this morning. Uh, and so I'm just going to kind of dive in. Uh, first of all, Luke made it back. Uh, good to have him back. And uh, he's been gone, for, if you didn't know, in North Carolina for the past two weeks, uh, doing his doctoral work there at Southeastern uh, Seminary. Uh, and so anyway, good to have him back. Uh, but anyway, so where we've been and in Acts, really through Acts 3, what we've been seeing is like everything's good, right? The church is, the spirit comes down, uh, people are getting saved, 3,000 get added to the number. They're, Peter and John and three are going into the temple and there's a crippled dude that gets healed. Like everything is awesome, right? So everything is just like, Sign me up, right? There's no resistance happening yet. Uh, but what, when we turn a page into chapter four, uh, tension begins to arise. Uh, the, 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 really what we begin to see is the first persecutions of the church begin to take place. And it starts with their own people. It starts with the religious leaders uh, of, of, of the Jews. And then it goes to Rome and throughout. But 
what's happening, what we see is that a resistance, a, uh, a, a pressure from the outside of people, really the enemy seeking to stop what's going on begins to take place. And what we'll see definitely uh, this morning in the next couple of chapters is how the church navigated that and how they remained faithful. Uh, they remained committed to the mission uh, they, that they trusted God. And, and, and But this morning in the text that we're in and that Ashley read, it's, man, it's, such a uh, such a good text for us, but it's also uh, probably one of the hardest texts for where we are in our culture to accept in the how it's the exclusiveness of Christ. I don't know if you called it when when Ashley read that there is no other name, but there is no other means for, for man to be saved. And so when we're coming into this passage this morning, understanding that, you know, for us as a child of God, for us who are, who are, who are uh, Christians who, who are going to spread the gospel and share the love of Jesus, we, we understand that that's something that in, in, a, in a culture of, of tolerance isn't really tolerated and and who are we to to tell somebody that that Jesus is the only way what gives us the right to go into somebody in another country or go into go into somebody's life and say hey, listen Jesus is the only way to God well this morning what we're going to see is that when Peter makes this statement we'll see what gives us that authority what gives us that opportunity in this mini sermon Peter stands in direct conflict with the culture that he lived in, and he declares Jesus is the only way of salvation. So let's go to the text. Verse one through four kind of sets up what's going on. And so uh, in chapter three, if you weren't here, they had healed a lame man. And uh, they came and they were kind of staring. Everybody gathered at Solomon's portico uh, and going, they saw this man who had been crippled his whole life and now he's healed. And so everybody gathers up around and Peter takes that opportunity to ultimately just exalt the name of Jesus that is in Jesus' name that this, uh, this, this happened. And so uh, when we pick up in verse or chapter four, verse one, it says, so as they were speaking, uh, I thought this was funny. You know, we always, I even made a joke that John was just, with all, was just always with Peter. We don't know if he could actually talk. Acts, scripture actually says, as they. And so we actually see John could talk here. And so we don't know if like they were like tag team in a sermon or if this is like after the sermon, they've had an invitation. They have like a counseling session. Go, I, they didn't, that, that's what we do. But anyway, but Peter and John were, were there and they both were having conversation. And so uh, really how I want to break down this text, verses one through 12, is in three areas. Number one is the arrest. That because of this miracle, uh, and because of ultimately what we see more specifically, that Peter and John were preaching in the temple, uh, that they were arrested. So if you're taking notes, the first point is, let's look at the arrest. So verse one says, so as they were speaking uh, to the people, the priest, the captain, and the, and the, sorry, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And so they're in the temple. We, we understand in chapter that they went up to the, the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon uh, to go for the time of prayer. And this is whenever this miracle happens, Peter begins to preach a sermon. What we catch on and, uh, is that by the time they arrested them, it was too late because it was already nighttime. And so 
For the past two to three hours, Peter's just been preaching. So never give me and Luke a hard time about uh, preaching too long. At least we're not preaching. Like, but so, so anyway, they've been preaching, right? And so what happens is, is that the priest, the captain of the temple, uh, they see this really, this, this crowd forming. And so they, they rush in. As a matter of fact, they come in very aggressively. The, the Greek there says when they came upon them, uh, literally means that they came in uh, swiftly and to, to, to do harm, if you will. They, 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 before they were even done talking to the people, these people crowded around. Let me kind of tell you, try to set up the scene of why they acted so swiftly and why why they arrested them for, for speaking these things in the temple. So first, the first group of people is you have the priest. And so the priest here that, that Luke records is that they're just ordinary priests performing their, the evening services. These, these priests, would, this is why it was such a big deal for them is uh, the priestly order was divided into to 24 courses. And so literally there were hundreds of priests. And the opportunity for this priest to be able to serve in the temple was literally by lot. His name would get drawn out. So literally there could be years and years, and sometimes they didn't even get, get to serve. So years and years. And so finally, he had his opportunity to serve in the temple. And these Christians are messing things up. You follow me? And so here you have this priest who's been waiting for so long, his name probably got drawn. All right, it's my time to shine. It's my time to be in the temple doing my thing. And all of a sudden the crippled man gets healed and everybody leaves there and goes and comes around Peter and John. The second person that is mentioned here is the, the captain of the temple. And so you have the priest who have been waiting maybe their whole life to be able to serve here. And now it's getting messed up. You have the, the captain of the temple, which is really like the, the temple police. Like this is like the sheriff. Like this is the top dog as far as the, the temple police went. And his main job was to maintain order. Uh, he actually assisted the high priest at times. And ultimately he was second in charge and power only that less of the high priest. And so ultimately he policed the temple. So you have priests who've been waiting their whole time, their whole life to be able to serve. You have this officer who he has to maintain order in the temple. And now things are going crazy. A guy who's over 40 years old, who has never walked a day in his life is suddenly healed. People get around Peter and John and Peter begins to preach the gospel. And so chaos is going on. But then there was the third group. It says the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the religious leaders in the temple. Uh, they actually were the most powerful religious leaders. And they were a theological group, but more than that, they were a political group. Uh, theologically, and this is why they had a hard time with the teachings of Jesus. Uh, theologically, they, they rejected oral traditions. They were like the written, the, the written law. That's, that's the only thing they went by. So the teachings that we see in the, in the gospels is really the Pharisees that would be a more of an oral teacher and, and, and teach the, they were like, the, the Sadducees were like, no, it's only the, the, the written tradition. They didn't believe in, uh, angels and demons or spiritual life. And uh, they didn't believe in future rewards or punishment in the future. Ultimately, they, they believed that man was in charge of his own destiny, which means they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. We lived our life and it was done. But the Sadducees, they did not even believe in the resurrection from the dead. So you, obviously you could see them standing up preaching and saying things like, the new Moses, 
Right? That's what we see at the, at the end of chapter 3, whenever verse 20, 22, when it says, And Moses said that the Lord would raise, and ultimately Peter is saying that Jesus is a new Moses. So here's these guys that believe only in the written thing, and now uh, they're saying, but there's a new Moses. And they're like, no, that ain't true. And he's raised from the dead. No, that's not true. And so, so theologically, you can see where they could have some issues, but I think their issues are more on the political side of things than it was even the theological side. See, the, the, the Sadducees were wealthy. They were mostly landowners. They had a lot at stake, if you will. And their main motive for anything was keeping peace with Rome. And so what the Sadducees wanted to do more than anything is maintain the status quo. To, and ultimately, they were, they, their job was to pr- protect Rome's holdings inside Jerusalem. And if they did that, then, the, then Rome would entrust them with, with a, the most power in Jewish life that the high priest would actually come from the Sadducees. So they were maintained, their, 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 their main goal was to maintain order, to, to preserve order. And we, we actually see this in the Gospels. Uh, in, in John chapter 11, th- this is them talking about Christ. And it says, and the chief priest, which would have been a Sadducee, and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? Check this out. For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And check out what their, their frustration was, their, their fear was. The Romans will come take away, every, take away both our place and our nation." That's the picture of the Sadducees is that their main desire was to, to not lose what they had, to keep Rome happy. And so now <laughs> you've got priests who their one, their one shot's gone. You've got, a, you got a, a police officer, if you will, the captain of the temple who order is not happening. And then you have these Sadducees who don't want Rome to get involved. They don't want anything crazy to begin to happen. So they rush in real quick. Everybody catching the picture. I had, that's, I had, it's important for me to catch the context. That's why they come in so, so swiftly to protect what they had. So you can see the ruckus being caused. And, and these guys, they, they were, there was a threat. So they came upon them, which means suddenly and hostile, with a hostile intent. Don't threaten what we had. So we see in verse one, uh, who was there and why they came. And so verse two says that they were greatly annoyed for two reasons. Luke gives us two reasons why these people were greatly annoyed. Number one is that they were teaching the people. They were, they were just frustrated that these people uh, were actually standing in their place to, to teach. They were annoyed that the, for the fact that these Galileans were, were teaching. We understand that in chapter four, that we understand that they knew that these, these guys had no training. They weren't educated. They weren't sophisticated. They, they, they didn't have any authorization to be there, if you will. And more than that, they were from Galilee. And I don't know if you remember whenever uh, uh, Nathaniel and Philip's conversation about the Messiah coming from Galilee, what the conversation was uh, in uh, John 146, uh, we that up, uh, and Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, 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 Philip said to him, come and see. That was the idea about these guys as they were from Galilee. Who they think they are coming in here and teach? Now, doesn't matter what they're teaching. It's that the fact that they are teaching. Who gave them authorization and how, what is their accreditation to actually be in this place? 
Oh, but good news is, is that 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31 it says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing uh, to those that are ours, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. What we begin to see right here, very beginning, is God using the weak and the ordinary in this great gospel message. So much so the religious leaders like, we just can't stand that you're actually teaching. And here's just a point for you is the power of the gospel shines brightest in the hands of the weak and the tongues of the foolish. And I, and I don't mean that like we're, we're stupid. What I mean by that is that we know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. Like it is in that, that vessel that the gospel shines the brightest. The gospel doesn't need my ologies and my, my letters by my name. It just needs to be, be preached. Uh, and what we see is that here at the very beginning, God using the Galilean nobodies to do mighty things in his name. They had no authority or accreditation to be teaching. So not only were they greatly annoyed that they were teaching the people, but the second thing is that they were proclaiming, check this, they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So not only was Peter preaching that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, but he was also preaching that in Jesus there's a resurrection from the dead. Right, so, some, so, so there's things that Luke didn't record that evidently somewhere Peter got into the sermon saying, listen to me, if you believe because he's the resurrection and life, if you believe in him that one day your body will be resurrected, that, that, you, will, that you, will be, you will go to heaven with him. So they were preaching that in Christ there was a resurrection from the dead. And this is where there becomes a twofold issue, specifically for the Sadducees. Number one is that it goes against the teachings of the Sadducees. Right? They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that, that, that Jesus, that's one of their biggest issues. One of the biggest issues of believing in Christ is that he couldn't keep himself from being killed. And so they definitely didn't believe in a resurrection. So if, they, if I come along teaching that and inside the place that the Sadducees had the authority, then I'm going to mess up. I'm going to contradict what they've been teaching, right? So there's the, the, the annoyance there. But... Peter's sermon, definitely with the resurrection of the dead, is filled with messianic undertones. And this is why this is important. For them, because Peter preached things about resurrection, the author of life, the new Moses, and all these have an apocalyptic type thinking, a messianic type thing. And in their mind, when, when these guys thought about the messianic age, what they were thinking about is the what? overthrow of Rome, right? So, you find, so in their minds is, oh my gosh, there's gonna be a revolt. Oh my gosh, so these, these guys are rebels. They're gonna cause everything. They're gonna make Rome come in and take everything that we have. And something like this that actually happened before. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go over to Acts 5, uh, verse 36. Before these, for before these days, uh, Thetis or Thotis uh, rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. And check out what happened to him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. That's an idea of what they think may be happening. And so they're like, we've got to nip this in the bud because why? We've got to maintain order. We can't let anything crazy happen because 
if these guys are talking about this messianic things, then they're going to revolt. They're going to cause an uproar with Rome. We're going to lose what we have. And so fears aroused, arose for fear of Roman tension. And here's something interesting about these guys. I believe that they were more motivated by their politics than they were their theology. And this is why I believe this. These guys didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. But not once did they ever refute that Jesus rose from the dead or not. If they didn't believe that, that Jesus, if there was a resurrection, then why did they not try to argue their way or point to the fact there's no way they, they never even went there? Why? Because they couldn't really care less about being right, but they wanted to protect what they had. And so I could go on a rant of check where we're pledging our allegiance to and things like that, but I'm not, I'm not going to go down that road. But you have these guys, literally, the religious leaders of their day. And the main reason they wanted to stop this thing is so that Rome didn't come in and take what was theirs. That's missing the mark, right? So they were greatly annoyed that they were teaching and what they were teaching. And so verse three says, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. Peter had preached a long sermon that we'll, we see in verse three. Verse four, uh, and notice that they actually, the, so the law said you couldn't bring people upon trial at, at, during, during the evening hours. We see that they obviously broke that with Jesus, but so they actually listening to the law, but check out verse four. I love this. And this is like Luke just all of a sudden. So they get arrested. Oh no. But then Luke says, but of those who had heard the word, many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So he just kind of interjects there. Like, I love, I love this. I just love reading the Bible and it just, you see, stuff. so it's like, oh no, Peter and John are arrested, but those who had already heard, they believed. I, they, it, didn't, it didn't stop what God was doing. Like it didn't, Peter and John didn't have to be there for people to place their faith in Jesus still. Well, truth, and you can write these down, is that when God works, so does the enemy. That's what, we're, that's what we see right here, is that God does a miraculous thing in healing a man. Who had never walked a day in his life and as God is working, as Peter is preaching a sermon, as, as, as the Holy Spirit is, is, and these are Jews, remember the, the context of the people that Peter was preaching to were Jews who, who had seen Jesus, who, who had seen God attested Jesus, but in their mind said, he is not the promised one. He is not the Messiah. We do not accept him as the one sent from God. That Peter preaches this sermon and the Holy Spirit has been doing something in these people's lives to make them change their mind about Christ. And as that's going on, the enemy's trying to stop things at the, all at the same time. And when God works, so does the enemy. So know that, child of God, when God is working in your life, whether personally or he's, being, he's using you to reach someone, he's working in somebody else's life, know that the enemy does not like that. Takes notice of that. Understand, listen to me. If you feel the enemy, tension, pressure, attacks, know that that must mean that God is at work in your life. Take that as affirmation that God's doing something. 
The second thing that we see is that whatever God wills, he has the power to accomplish it. They couldn't, God had planned that day for the number of believers to come to be about 5,000. It doesn't matter if Peter and John was there because God, God willed it and he has the power to accomplish it. Right, you follow me? And so that's, that's good truth for us. And the third thing is again, whatever God wills, man can't alter it. So we see in the arrest of them trying to stop what God was doing and trying to stop what was happening because they didn't, listen to me, the Sadducees just didn't want uh, uh, crazy and revolt happening, but what they couldn't see is that God was bringing to the, to the, to the table more people to the family. And it says 5,000, right? And so it says the number of men. So this wasn't 5,000 more. So at, we see at Pentecost that 3,000 came to know Jesus. So now after this, however long time that was in between, then now those who are following Jesus is somewhere around 5,000 men. We're not talking about women or children or anybody who's placed their faith in Jesus. This is just 5,000 total. Listen to me. The church is on, like it's booming. God's at work. An enemy is at work as well. So they're arrested. They bring them in. So number two, if you're taking notes, is the question. So the arrest, the question, we see that in five through seven. It says, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. So let's just kind of tell you who these people are. Uh, this is where he doesn't call them, call them this here. We see that in the next section. These are the, this is the Sanhedrin. This is like the, the Supreme Court and the legislative body. Like it's all in one. Like this is like the, 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 the group of people inside uh, Jerusalem that had all the power. So we have 20, the rulers would be the 24, priest, 24 from the priestly order. The elders would be family heads or heads of tribes. The scribes would be law experts. And this is mostly Pharisees. And so the Pharisees were part of even this Sadducee and dominated body, right? And so... It's a mixed house, if you will. And so uh, you have, but the Sadducees had the power. And so, because that's who the high priest was. And so you had the, the scribes and law experts. Uh, and then, so these people made up what was known as the Sanhedrin. And that's important for us to know because in the book of Acts, we'll see them before the Sanhedrin over and over again. So the Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the nation, but check this, they were under the power of Rome still. As I said, the Sadducees maintained power by keeping Rome happy. As long as Rome was happy, Rome would let them be in charge. Everybody follow me there? So that was what's going on there. So there was, uh, it was also a Supreme Court. There were 71 members of the Sanhedrin plus the high priest. And so then Luke gives us a list of names and uh, I'll just read these for you. And what you should catch is that these are the same names of people who brought Jesus the trial as well. And so you just see, you know, not long after these same people who resisted Christ are now resisting his followers. You see in uh, verse six, he says with Annas, the high priest, uh, who actually wasn't the serving high priest. He was like high priest emeritus. Like he was the guy who they just kept around. He was the old guy, his son, Caiaphas was actually the high priest. Uh, and so you have both of them there. 
Uh, many people say that Annas was actually the shot caller and Caiaphas just did whatever. You have John, which there is no history of a guy named John in the Sanhedrin, but uh, I think Annas had another son named Jonathan that could be who that was. I know this is boring to you, but anyway. And then Alexander and all who were of the high priestly. So you have all these people, these rulers, these elders, these scribes, this Sanhedrin, like the Supreme Court of Jewish life. You follow me? Test the scene. And these dudes are mad. These dudes are trying to nip in the bud what's going on. These, these untrained Galileans are up in my temple preaching this nonsense about the resurrection from the dead, blah, 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 blah. They're going to cause revolt so you can imagine the tension that fills this room. And to make it even more, it says that uh, in verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, this is what that means, literally in the middle. And so the, uh, it's believed that the, the Sanhedrin is set in like a semicircle, like a moon. That's how, they, that's how they set. And so what would happen is, is whoever's on trial, they would come and put them in the middle of the room. You talking about intimidating? Like if there was ever a time to go, ah, I changed my mind, this is it. Like I, I, don't, think I'm gonna, I don't think I'm gonna keep my feet to the fire. I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna bail out here because here I am in front of all of these people, the same people that killed Jesus, I'm standing in front of now. It says, when they had set them in their midst, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 13. I'll read real quick just so, because even though that these guys miss Jesus and their whatever, is that they, a lot of times they were still doing the things that God had told them to do. And, and so in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses one through five, it says this, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and check these words, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And check this out. If he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known and let us serve them. So what the, 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 the goal of this question, this goal of this inquiry is these dudes perform signs and wonders. Are they leading people to God or are they leading people away from God? So that was the purpose of this court setting for the, for the Sanhedrin to look at them and ask them, say, is this, are they doing this? Are they telling people to go serve this other God and that kind of deal? But actually, I won't read the rest of it, but in chapter 13 there, it says, if this person does that, then kill them. And so that's really what's at stake here is that they're being brought before the Supreme Court. And there's a chance that if the Supreme Court decides these guys are leading people away from God, they had the power to take their lives. Everybody catching the context with me. I know this is a lot, but just, just stay with me. So they began questioning to see if this is leading to God or not. And so they asked the question. We see that in verse seven, by what power or by what name did you do this? And many people, I think specifically the teaching part is what they're asking here. Obviously, they want to know about the, the man being healed because he talks about it, but I also think they're, they're asking, and, and who gave you the authorization? Because name represents power and authority. And so what they're asking is, who gave you the authority to do this? Who authorized you to do this? Who, who, whose accreditation are you using to be in this place to do these things? That's the question that they're at. They, they don't care about being you know, right or wrong theologically, who told you you could come here? 
By whose power are you doing these things? And this question implies that they thought that they were rebels. By whose power did you come into this place teaching these things? But notice something here. That Peter and John hadn't fought. They hadn't resisted. <laughs> we were just going to the temple to pray and we healed a man and preached a sermon and now I'm standing before the Supreme Court. They never, they never, Peter of all people, the guy that cut the dude's ear off, right? Like if there's a guy that's going to fight and resist what's going on, it's Peter. Listen, I, I, I wrote it down like this, that the trust in God's purpose leads to peace in one circumstance. That, that what you see with Peter and John is they were, they were in a life or death situation. But not once did they whine, not once did they resist arrest. They just peacefully walked to where God had them, being obedient, and they, they had peace there. They, were, they trusted God's purposes enough that they, I think they believed that they, they were exactly where they were supposed to be at the moment. That they were, they were following God and what God had laid out for them to do. So the question is, by whose power and whose name did you do this? So number three is the answer. We see the arrest. We see the question. Finally, we see the answer. And I love how Peter starts this. First of all, he says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's important for us to catch. We talked about this in our Holy Spirit series that, that filled means to be, to be controlled by that. It, it speaks of, of Peter yielding himself. It wasn't that, that Peter uh, was prayed enough prayers and suddenly the whole spirit kind of drenched him or he, he did. What happened is that Peter was walking in obedience, yielded to the spirit and get spirit movement and the spirit controlled what was going on. Actually, it's a direct promise that's fulfilled that Jesus gave them in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, uh, say this. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Check this out. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So what happened, and I think Luke records that on purpose because here they are, they get questioned, and immediately the promise that God, that Jesus had gave them is fulfilled and the Holy Spirit takes over. They aren't prepared for this moment. They, and listen to me. And Peter's response is nothing short of a God response. And so he's filled. It denotes this yieldingness to the spirit, which is, by the way, which is necessary for anyone, especially in times like this. It's a direct promise, which is truth here, is that what Jesus promises will come to be. And we, we talk about promises of God a lot here, and that we see it. Even here, and so the Holy Spirit speaking through you because of this yielding to the Spirit. Watch this boldness of Peter uh, in verse verse nine or end of verse eight. He says, "Then Peter's filled with the Spirit, said to them, rulers of the peoples. I, I feel like he talked like that. Rulers of the people and elders." And then he asks a question that's almost sarcastic in verse nine. It says, "If we're really here being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man." Like, you really brought us here because we helped a crippled man? Uh, so he starts kind of, I, I, maybe that's just me because I'm sarcastic, but I see that's what, I think that's what Peter is doing. He's like, seriously, guys, your question is, we did something good here, and now you brought us here. And so uh, if this is the reason why we're here, 
And by what means this man is healed, check out verse 10, well, let it be known. If you really want to know, I guess I'll tell you. If you really want to know how this man is healed, I guess I'll open my mouth and tell you by whose name it was. If you really have to know, if it must be known, and check out what he says. He says, uh, let it be known to all of you. So all of 71 of you and everybody else in Israel, let everybody hear this. He was speaking, he wanted everybody to know what he was saying here. You see the humanity here in Peter. Like, hey, all right, well, I'll tell you. Uh, Let it be known, and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, there it is, the apostolic teaching, but God raised from the dead. That's the third time or fourth time we've seen it just in four chapters, whom you crucified, this incriminating, that you crucified, but God raised from the dead. And it's what he says, Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. So not only uh, did you crucify him, but you rejected him. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. Here he quotes Psalm 118, 22. uh, That actually says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's another fulfilled prophecy concerning even these guys. And so Peter, through the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit, connects Psalm 118, 22 to this setting, say, listen to me, you're the builders that rejected the stone that God sent. He was the one that was put forth. They rejected him. And Peter turns the tables to point to them and say, listen to me. Ultimately, remember why he was, why, why was he there on, why were they there on trial? To see if, these guys are leading people away from God. And what Peter actually says, no, listen to me, you're the one that's leading people away from God. He flips the table on them. Because the one that I'm talking about is the one that God sent. He was the cornerstone you rejected and you crucified, but God raised him from the dead. And then verse 12, to, f- to finish this portion off, Peter says, And while I'm talking, you got to know this, this cornerstone that God has set, this stone that you rejected, there is salvation in no one else. That's not a tolerated message. Definitely not for them, but not in our, there is salvation in no one else. And then he says, for there is no other name under heaven given, given among men. Church, do you realize that we believe that? that we actually believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. Like that's what we actually believe. And actually uh, one of the marks and definitely where we are, and I've done this in premarital counseling, I've done this in other counseling, definitely in our, our age and culture that we live in now, whenever I'm talking to somebody about their conversion story, I'll even ask them, I said, all right, you believe in Jesus. Are you willing to say that he's actually the only way? In the world that we live in, are you, are you, are you, do you believe in Jesus enough to actually say, listen to me, but, and he is the only way, not one among many, but one above all. He, it's him and him alone. Are you willing to do that? And, and Peter stands here in front of this Supreme Court Life or death situation. And he says, listen to me. You rejected this guy. God raised him up. Listen to me. Today in his name, in his name alone, is, is you can find salvation. And I love that he uses, uses this word by which we. 
must be saved. Peter didn't say just that you must be saved. No, listen to me. Peter came to the same salvation the same way that they would. Belief in and on the name of the Lord Jesus. He includes himself in understanding. Listen to me. Hey, you rejected him. I would have rejected him. I I denied him. But in his name and by his power, we can be saved. And actually says we, what, must be saved. There's a, a necessary component to that word must. So, how do we have the authority to proclaim this truth? We see in Acts 3 and 4, is that because the Father raised him from the grave and exalted him to his right hand. The Father raised him and glorified him. So here's truth out of this text is obstacles become opportunities when we're filled by the Spirit. There's many things in our life that doesn't necessarily look or smell like God's at work because we, in our minds, have this understanding like this is how God works. Or, and I'm not acting like something crazy, like supernatural, like he's writing in the stars. I'm just saying like things oftentimes in our life that seem like an obstacle, if we're navigating it through the feeling of the Spirit, they actually can become opportunities. Opportunities for growth, opportunities to share the gospel, opportunities literally to preach the gospel. Oh no, our ringleaders are being arrested. And little do we know, I mean, little do they know at the time, and a few chapters later, these same guys are some of the guys that are coming to faith in Jesus. These same guys that these people who had once saw Jesus and rejected him are now gonna be people who, who believe in him. Some, some of the guys who were in the courts who, who, who sentenced Jesus will be people who will turn to faith in Jesus. And what these apostles look like are actually become opportunities when we're walking by the Spirit. Because when we're walking by the Spirit, we see things differently. I'm about to get off on my, that's not in here. And, and what happens is when we begin to, to walk by the power of the Spirit, yielded to the power of the Spirit, God, the Spirit begins to open our eyes, not just to see people, but to gain perspective on things and, and see things in a way that may, maybe God may be trying to use me in this situation. Maybe God may be trying to teach me in this moment or in this situation. Maybe God's trying to grow my faith here in this moment. And so I encourage you to see obstacles as opportunities. Don't meet every resistance because listen to me, what they're experiencing right now, Christ had already warned them about. Hey, don't be surprised whenever they hate you. They hated me first. They didn't receive me. They're not going to receive you. There was nothing. So understanding that seeing these, what seems to be like obstacles, maybe we see them as opportunities. The second thing is don't compromise in the face of adversity. Because listen, I know we carry a message that is not tolerated in a tolerant culture. And it's very easy for us to, to back down. And what we see here is that, because I've already made mention of Peter and John, they were submissive. They walked humbly. But they didn't shut their mouth when it came time to preach Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Probably could have been better for them if they did. Probably wouldn't have to worry about being arrested again in another chapter. And eventually being nailed to a cross upside down or beheaded or sent off to the island of Patmos to just be there or getting thrown into a Roman Colosseum with an animal skin on them and with a lion that gets let out. To be burned at a stake. It'd been a whole lot easier for them at that moment to say, you believe your way, I believe mine, we're good. But instead, he says, and it's in his name, by his power alone, can we be saved. So don't, don't compromise in the face of adversity. Because listen to me, the path, the growth of the church has been built on the blood of the martyrs who didn't compromise. So how dare we compromise because we may offend somebody in 2022? How dare we, church? Well, I just, you got to love, yes, you got to love people, but you're going to love them straight to hell if we don't share the gospel with them. Well, you know, I got to be politically correct because I don't want to, you know, turn people off if I don't buy them their trust first. And that's, there's, there's validation there, but hey, may we not compromise on the exclusiveness of Jesus for the sake of, of being politically accepted. The, Sad, the, the Sadducees did that. But we're here today because Peter did not. Third thing is trust God with the outcome. All right, if you gotta know, I'll tell you. Is Jesus the one you rejected, the father raised? It's only in him can we be saved. All right, God, you got it from here. Because Peter didn't know at that moment if they were going to throw a javelin or something. And like they did, not that that's not what they do in a court because they're, they're sophisticated individuals. They did, he, he preached the gospel. He preached Jesus and Jesus alone, not knowing what the outcome was. He just knew that he was, he was required to preach the gospel. He didn't know that if, if the, what we'll see next week is that they actually let him out and they just kind of give him a warning. They didn't know that after the Sanhedrin met, if they were going to come and they were going to be killed. But instead, he preached the gospel and he trusted God with the outcome. May we do the same as a church. Hey, I'm excited this morning. I got to be quiet. I can keep going, but I, I got I to keep going. I mean, I got to quit. We're going to take communion together as a church, and Luke's going to come up in a moment and lead us in that. But hey, this morning, uh, I want to encourage you, child of God, uh, to look in the, and just look in the Bible and just see how the enemy enemy, enemy cannot overcome what God's, God's doing and what God's done. Like, take that as individualistic as you can to corporate as you can. Like, from, from, the, from the Iota to the Milky Way galaxy, whatever God, whatever God wills and works, it, it will be done because he has the power to do it, and the enemy can't avail it. Like, it cannot be, be. That should encourage you, no matter how big or small your situation is. If you're in here this morning and... You're trusting in anything other than the name of Jesus for salvation. I want to do as Peter and say, hey, listen to me. There's only one name that we, we must be saved. You, we all come to God through the same door, and his name is Jesus.
It's about realizing, hey, I'm, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I'm depraved, I'm dead in my sin, which means not that I'm like barely hanging on, floating, waiting for somebody to throw me a raft. No, it means like I'm dead. The scripture says that we're enemies of God. Just like we see this Sanhedrin, literally enemies of Jesus, God says you're dead in your sin and you're an enemy of his. The good thing about God is that God can make his enemy his friends. And he does that by sending this guy named Jesus that we've been talking about, who came and lived. Listen to me, you have the Sanhedrin and Pharisees who try to live a perfect lawful life, but they couldn't, that Jesus even lived on their account. He came and lived perfectly, perfectly satisfying the demands of the law. Because in order for Adam, Adam was the first created man, in order for Adam to continue to walk with God and maintain the covenant, that then Adam had to really walk in perfect obedience, but Adam failed. And so what God did is that God sent someone who could perfectly obey that covenant, that law, even on behalf of these guys and on behalf of you and me. And this guy, not only did he live a perfect life, it says that he, he died on a cross. And so he lived a, a representative life, but he also died a substitutionary death, which means that the death, really not just the type of death, but the, the wrath of God that he experienced would be one that we, we deserve, right? And that, that the Sanhedrin deserved. The very ones that crucified him, listen to me, they sentenced him to die a death that he died in their place. Then he was laid in the tomb. But thanks be to God as we're saying this morning that hallelujah, Christ is risen from the dead. And now the father, not only did he attest to him in his life, but he attested to him in his resurrection by saying, yes, this is the one I've sent. I, I accept his payment on the cross. I, I glorify him and I sit him at the right hand of the father. So now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And this is what scripture tells us that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Because he's seated on his throne, glorified, resurrected, if you call upon his name, he will save you. That easy. We trust in his name. We call upon his name because it is the only way to salvation. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for just being able to open your text and just, just teach and read and understand. God, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning who is trusting in anything other than in Jesus, God, that your Holy Spirit will convict them. Show them that. And God, that today they will trust in you. They will call upon your name to save them, to make them new. God, I pray for any believer in here who may be walking through what they are perceiving to be an obstacle. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will let them see it as an opportunity to be used by you. God, we thank you that what you promise will come to be. 
as Evie said yesterday, God, that, that Jesus and God are God because they're the only ones that keep their promises. And so God, we thank you that you're a promise keeper. And we pray that as we enter this time of where we come to the table together, God, that you stir our hearts and affection for you. We pray that you have the glory that you alone are due. It's in Christ's name.